Let's give them another hand of applause for Jesus' sake. On October 24, 1987, at Freedom Hall, Louisville, Kentucky, Candace Leonard and I joined the multitude attending the Tina Turner concert. We'd never heard her in person and decided to live dangerously. Tina Turner was probably at the height of her career right then, singing about love, betrayal, human frailty, and life's rough edges. For many Southern Baptists, she wasn't just earthy, she was worldly. And I was a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. <laughs> Our attendance at the concert would have been frowned on by many of the beloved brethren and sisters. A friend asked me if I should wear a disguise. I didn't. Tina had already told us we don't need another hero. Don't you all get that? Now I'm going to digress a minute and say I did not know until 10 minutes ago that Greg, Gerald, and the jazz folks were going to be here this morning. They, were, I think, were supposed to play last Sunday when my dear friend and colleague, Dean Jonathan Walton, occupied this pulpit. But I want you all to know, this is the third time I have preached with them in this very congregation. Greg, I think it's time we took this on the road. <laughs> I had no idea when I wrote this sermon to include Tina Turner. But as the old Kentucky serpent handler said to me many years ago, well, Jesus knowed, didn't he? Jesus knowed. Unbelievable. Back to Louisville, 1987. The evening began as Tina Turner descended to earth from an elevated pedestal above the stage, surrounded by smoke. Then a barrage of her classics. Back where you started, break every rule. You better be good to me. At the concert's midpoint came the classic of the classics. A trademark hit with this unforgettable refrain. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart? when a heart can be broken. I'm not going to ask you all to sing a stanza. 
Let's just stay with just as I am. 34 years later, I find myself going back to those words in a nation filled to the brim with broken hearts. Not just because of broken relationships, but because of families broken apart by deaths due to opioid addictions, shootings, even escalating death threats, rabid political division, and oh yes, even talk of civil war. On top of it all, this moment in history seems captured at least in the title of Gabriel Garcia Marcus' classic novel, Love in a Time of Cholera in which he, much like Tina Turner, views love itself as potentially volatile as any human plague, cholera or COVID alike. Just years ago, maybe just a year ago, I preached in this very church a sermon in which I spoke about being the church in the post-COVID era. Any of you remember? Don't raise your hands. A year later, <laughs> I think I've relinquished any claim to being prophetic. Right now, we'd better learn how to love in a time of cholera, since our version ain't going away anytime soon. Thus, in this volatile culture, even in churches, the question remains, what's love got to do with it? This month, we suddenly realize that from now on, America will be compelled each January to remember both the violence of January 6, 2021, and barely a week or two later, the nonviolent justice-pursuing life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., so those who look and long for Christ's gospel must declare and live out this truth. God's love made known in Jesus is no second-hand emotion. I'd like to get a witness here. <laughs> little, bit of, little bit of jazz of, oh, oh, get me all revival-like. Great. <laughs> no secondhand emotion. It is the center of our calling in the church and in the world. So don't fret. My text today is not taken from Tina Turner, but from the Apostle Paul in the haunting 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In those 13 verses, Paul answers Tina. What's love got to do with it? 
everything. Verse 1 says it straight up. If I speak, or let's add, even sing, in the tongues of mortals or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul loves the church at Corinth, writing, In you, the evidence of the truth of Christ has found confirmation. Yet while they confirm Christian truth, Christian love has eluded them. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul urges them to agree among yourselves and avoid divisions. Be firmly united in unity of mind and thought. On his way to chapter 13, he responds to the divisions in the Corinthian church, and it's quite a list. They are at odds over who's the best preacher, over actions related to eating habits, to sexual practices, to legal matters. They're suing each other. And the presence of what Paul calls in the New English Bible, I love this, loose livers. Those who, he says, lead loose lives or are grabbers or swindlers or idolaters. Even their communal meals are divisive, he writes. The result is that when you meet as a congregation, it is impossible for you to eat the Lord's Supper because each of you is in a hurry to eat his own meal. And while one goes hungry, another has too much to drink. Too much to drink? In church? Maybe they were all Irish and we don't know it. I used to say, I used to say that the early church at Corinth was surely proto-Baptist because they fought over food and sex. But then I know they're not because they drank in church. Then Paul offers one of the most insightful descriptions of the nature of Christ's church found in the New Testament. He writes to the Corinthian church and the Myers Park Baptist churches, Charlotte, these powerful words, <clears throat> for Christ is like a single body with its many limbs and organs, which many as they are, <clears throat> Together make up one body. For indeed we were all brought into one body by baptism in the one spirit. Whether we are Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And that one Holy Spirit was poured out for all of us to drink. The same spirit provides each of us with gifts, gifts that enhance the body of Christ to which we all belong. 
Yet each one of these gifts are essentially useless, he says, without the greatest gift of all, love. The Greek word Paul uses is agape, one of four different Greek words that distinguish types of love. We're stuck with one in English. Storge is family love. Philia is friendship love. Eros, romantic love. And agape describes God's love for us, the ideal for our love for God, and the love we have to offer with compassion for one another. Agape is the word Jesus used when he said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. It is Jesus saying, you have heard it said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. Beautiful calling, difficult to fulfill. The radical love that Paul describes comes straight from the life and action of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul received his understanding of the depth and breadth of God's love from Jesus. We do too. Hear these words from Jesus through Paul. Not in terms of the first century, but in terms of the 21st century. I love the New English Bible translation. Love is patient. Love is kind. And envies no one. Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude. Never selfish, not quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs. Does not gloat over the sins of others, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. This morning, let us acknowledge that the times in which we live, the society we occupy, and the elements of our own lives are often a long way off from those gospel ideals. Yes, every era in American life is a long way from the love personified in Jesus and articulated by Paul. But this is our era. And we must be realistic about what ideas and actions surround us. Right now, our country needs the church to give witness to that kind of radical love, even when the nation itself seems far off from it. Likewise, the church needs the church 
to struggle with our own internal witness to that truth, seeking the aid of the Spirit to give us courage to live out that radical calling of love. One of the reasons I've never preached on this chapter in Scripture before, and the lectionary made me do it. (laughs) Holy Ghost too, but that's another story. The reason I've not preached on it before is it's always seemed too ideal, too impossible to me. Who among us can live free from conceit, rudeness, selfishness all the time? I'm hesitant to hold that out as a gospel mandate because I can't hold it out in myself either. Not always. In our third year of COVID, we've often become too quick to take offense and keep score of wrongs, but we must not allow those harmful, unloving actions to become normative in ourselves, our society, and our churches. All of us fall off the love wagon from time to time. We practice what William Sloan Coffin calls limited love. Paul confessed in himself, For I I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. He reminded us that our knowledge and our prophecy, those high ideas alike, are partial, and the partial vanishes, he says, when wholeness comes. That's it, isn't it? The gift of love is not a one-stop, drive-through gift. It is a life lived out with strength and brokenness, in sin and redemption, love and unlove. Wholeness is elusive, but love lasts forever. It is no second-hand emotion. This love that Paul calls the greatest of gifts is tough love, not syrupy, drippy, and easy love. Dr. King, of all people, knew how difficult it could be, but he continually asserted that the alternative is personal, communal, and yes, ecclesiastical lostness. He wrote, We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. The person who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. The test of this greatest of gifts is how we activate it in the world. Last November, I heard Dr. Cornell West give two masterful lectures at Wake Forest University. Actually, They were more like revival meetings than lectures. 
as he took us through his own religious experience, much of it as a Baptist. One brief line filled my heart and head to this very moment. Justice is what love looks like. I can't get that out of my head. Justice is what love looks like. The love Christ calls for and personified is love for the least among us. It is the means by which, as Jesus of Nazareth says in the synagogue there, we bind up the brokenhearted. We let the broken victim go free. We set at liberty those who are oppressed and take the gospel to the poorest of the poor. Bishop Tutu said it like this, every church should be able to get a letter of recommendation from the poor in their community. Oh my soul. Hear this one more time. Love is patient. Love is kind and envies no one. Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude. Never selfish, not quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs. Does not gloat over the sins of others, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. There is nothing love cannot face. Nothing love cannot face. Nothing, nothing, nothing. My Lord, what a morning. 